Thank you, David, so much for leading us in that time of praise and worship. And now, friends and family, it is time for us to get into God's Word. And today we're going to put our study of the book of Exodus on hold uh, for just a couple of weeks. I believe that the Lord's put a number of things on my heart. We're in the middle of a crazy election cycle. I know there's a lot of nervous apprehension and strong emotions and fears and wonders and everything else kind of going on. And so I believe there's some key principles that the Lord wants to speak to us. And so this morning, I want to turn our attention to the book of First Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the New Testament today. And we're going to look at First Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read this passage together, we'll pray over the word, and then we will get into our study. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me now as I read God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, this is God's word. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we praise you and thank you for your word that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, I believe that we are in desperate and dark times, Lord. There is so much doubt. There is so much confusion. There is so much chaos all around us, Lord. And yet I believe that your children are children of light that we do not walk in darkness, nor are we called to walk in darkness, but that the light of God is shining upon us and that the love of Christ is meant to shine out from us. 
And so, Lord, I just pray for your blessing over this study today. I pray that you would root and ground your people firmly in your word of truth and in the love of Christ, and that you would use your people as a beacon of hope to the world around us. We ask for your blessing now over this time of study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the... Uh, technologies or features of the modern world that I'm very thankful for is GPS. I'm very thankful that anywhere I go nowadays I have a phone and I can type in the address of the place I'm going. No need to get out giant maps and flip them around and you know pull over to the side of the road and, and look over and figure it out. Nope, I can just type in the address on my handy phone and the GPS system will do its work and even tell me what the shortest route is and if I don't want toll roads or I want toll roads or highways or side roads and it'll figure all that out for me. So it's just a wonderful technology. But once in a while, it's wrong. Has anyone had that experience? Once in a while, GPS is actually wrong. I'd say in my experience, I'm curious what your experience is, but in my experience, the GPS is probably 99% right, maybe 98, 99, very high percentage of the time it's right. As a matter of fact, it's right so often, um, it's, it's hard to even believe when it's wrong that it's actually wrong because it's right so much, you look at it, you go, you know, I don't think that's the way, but my GPS says, so it must be right. And I remember one time we were... Uh, late, my wife and I were late to an appointment and we were commuting and, you know, sure enough, it, it looked like it was taking us kind of the wrong way, but I just stuck with it because it's right so often and it took us the wrong way and we were late and my wife was upset and I was like, well, I'm sorry, babe, I, I, it's usually right. So I, I just trusted it anyway. Well, I want to suggest this morning that our conscience is sort of like a God-given GPS, God given, gives the conscience to human beings, and it's meant to be a guide to kind of get us where we're supposed to go. I think a lot of us today have a real strong sense of our conscience. Our conscience is leading us uh, to do certain things, to vote certain ways, to uh, engage in certain things, to not engage in certain things, to support certain things, not to support certain things. We, we have a very strong conscience, this GPS system, God's put it, and we just follow it, and it's usually pretty accurate. But sometimes the conscience, like a GPS system, is wrong. And that's why it's so important for believers not just to go with their feelings, not just to go with their conscience, but to go to the Word of God. Because the Word of God is never wrong. Not, not just 98 or 99% of the time, 100% of the time. And so for even of God's people who are very, very biblically informed, and we have a strong conscience, even we can be mistaken at times. It's possible, and it's very important that God's people be aware of this. Such was the case at Corinth when Paul first penned this letter. The people there in Corinth had apparently had a very strong conscience on very practical matters. Practical matters we're going to see that don't necessarily relate to us today, but the issues and the principles beneath those issues apply in all times and all places and in certain ways couldn't be more true than they are 
today. And so what we want to do is dive into this text. And what I hope God does is he realigns the GPS of our hearts. He realigns our consciences so that they are pointed in the right direction. And so I'm calling this morning's message, Love is the Way. Love is the Way. So I've divided up this text into three parts. And the first part is going to be verses 1 through 3. So let's take a look. Now concerning things offered to idols. Um, now, the book of 1 Corinthians is kind of interesting because it's really Paul's response to a prior letter written by the Corinthians and sent to Paul. Now, we don't have that letter that the Corinthians wrote, but we can piece together quite well what it was they were asking. They were asking a series of questions, and that's really what the book of 1 Corinthians is. It's largely a series of responses to various questions which makes it a perfect book, a perfect candidate to sort of be able to dive right into the middle like we're doing today. First Corinthians 8, it's roughly in the middle of the book. Whereas other books, if you didn't know the first seven chapters or you didn't know what comes after, uh, you might get a little bit lost. I'd say that's really not the case here because he's tackling various topics. And we know that he's doing this because he states it expressly in chapter 7. For example, he begins chapter 7 by saying, Now concerning the things which you wrote. So we know they wrote to him. They're asking questions. And here he begins chapter 8 by saying, Now concerning these things. So once again, he's reiterating the idea that the Corinthians had asked about this. So the question, the topic to be addressed here is, Things offered to idols, namely meat. That's going to be his subject matter. Now, don't let that subject matter throw you off. Because while many things, such as marriage and sexuality, are, are on the surface very applicable today, I think sometimes modern readers, they, they see what the surface issue is here in chapter 8, eating meat offered to idols, and they say, oh, well, this is irrelevant. Let's just move on to chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever it might be. But friends, make no mistake, just because the surface issue is not something you and I deal with doesn't mean that the underlying principles don't apply. Because we're going to see today, they most certainly do. They apply in any and every age. So he says, now concerning things offered to idols. He's going to get to that. But notice, that's not what he does, first thing. The first thing Paul does is he addresses what's underneath. And I think that's a good advice for you and I today. Many people, because politics don't deal ultimately with issues of the heart. We're not dealing with deep matters of, of theology and anthropology and all this kind of stuff when we're dealing with politics in America per se. Politics deals with these matters on the surface. And that's not to say they don't matter. Of course they matter. But what Paul does here is he says, look, I know everyone's got strong feelings about these matters on the surface. But before I can address that, I actually need to go down underneath and I need to examine what's happening in the heart. That's a very important tip for you and I today when we're looking at ourselves about how we feel about political issues on the surface or if we want to talk to somebody else about a political issue, perhaps somebody with whom we disagree. Sometimes it's very, very important not to begin with the superficial issue. 
the eating of me, but rather to dig down and say, what's really driving this whole thing? And actually examine that from a biblical point of view. And that's what Paul does. He says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That's interesting. He's not talking about idols. Ultimately for Paul, this isn't about idols. It's about idols, but it's not. Idols are the occasion for the conversation. They're bringing people together or dividing people. But underneath is something much deeper. It is a principle. And he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, most scholars agree that what Paul is saying here, when he says that phrase, we know that we all have knowledge, he's citing what was likely a Corinthian slogan. We all have knowledge, gnosis. And it was probably this idea that we are kind of specially enlightened. We have the inside track on information. We've got the information that most people don't have or, or everybody else is kind of running around thinking this is how it really is. But we have the secret gnosis. We have the knowledge. And so that was probably the slogan being chanted there in Corinth. Now, interestingly, Paul doesn't necessarily deny that they don't indeed have some real deep knowledge, that they don't have some kind of hidden knowledge. He seems to perhaps affirm it, but he also critiques it. So he affirms it, but he critiques it. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. He doesn't disagree with that, but notice what he does say. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So he juxtaposes knowledge, knowledge for its own sake. What knowledge does in the human heart, apart from love, is not good. People who believe that, oh, I know, we know, we are the ones who are the keepers of the true, secret, and hidden knowledge. It is we. What Paul says that kind of attitude does, what we might call knowledge for knowledge's sake, knowledge for one's own selfish sake, it puffs up. This is another way of saying it makes you conceited, arrogant, and prideful. That's ultimately what knowledge can do. And so he says knowledge for its own sake actually does a bad thing. It inflates your ego. It inflates your sense of self. It inflates your sense of pride. And that's not good. Notice what he says in contrast. But love edifies. That word edifies is the Greek word oikodomia, oikodomia, and it literally is the language used of building up, constructing a house. So this idea of knowledge, it inflates the ego of the self of an individual, but love builds up a community. Notice that. That's, that's the idea. Knowledge puffs up the, the, the ego, but love does something else. It actually is constructive and it builds up a community. And so Paul already is telling us this point. Make sure that the goal of knowledge is love. 
Make sure that the goal of knowledge is love. Whatever you're learning, whether it's the Bible, whether it's digesting uh, the news, the evening news, whatever it is, you're going off to college or your kids are going off to college, make sure, friends, all of you, that as you're digesting this knowledge, you don't just allow it to serve yourself, to puff up your own sense of ego that I'm in the right and I know better than everyone else and anyone who doesn't agree with me is an idiot. That's that's what knowledge for its own sake does. It makes puffed up. It makes arrogant. But love says, how can I use what I know to bless and build up all these people in Jesus Christ? That's what love does. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Again, it's the idea that the person who's a know-it-all, who thinks they know everything and cannot be taught, that's actually the person that knows nothing. So again, love is teachable. An arrogant person could actually know some real things, but they're they're not going to be teachable. There's going to be things they don't know. There's going to be things we all don't know, but here's the problem. Some people more than others don't know what they don't know. A humble person, as they grow in knowledge, they become more aware of what they don't know. And it increases humility rather than pride. So again, this person who thinks they know everything, that's the person that really knows nothing, Paul says. And notice this. Notice how knowledge ultimately gets turned around. What knowledge really matters most if we want to talk about knowledge Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Friends, Paul turns this idea of human knowledge around on its head. What ultimately matters in life is not what we know, but what God knows. It is not our knowing of things, but God's knowing of us that is fundamentally most important. And once again, that that kind of knowledge, human knowledge for the Christian is something that involves humility because what we believe in God's knowing of us and in the Old Testament, when it says that God alone or God knew Israel alone of all the nations of the world, that knowing was love. It wasn't just a theoretical knowing. It wasn't just, oh, well, I I know Israel, so I'm going to just forget about them and do my own thing. No, when God said, I know you, you alone have I known, he means you alone have I loved, that God's knowledge is used in the exercise of love. So make sure, friends, that the goal of all of your learning and all of your knowledge is love. It is not puffing up ourselves. It is rather building up a community in the Lord. The second section is going to be verses 4 through 8. And what we're going to see here is an invitation for God's love to redeem your beliefs. We're going to see an invitation for God's love to redeem your beliefs. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but 
one. So he's addressed, remember, there's the surface issue, the eating of meat. That's what they ask. Paul says, I can't talk about that yet. I know that's what you guys want to talk about. I know that's what you are talking about. This is a big debate. It's kind of a, uh, we think of it as religious, but it was also a political and social debate happening in Corinth. Paul says, I can't talk about that yet. I can, but not yet. I got to dig down in verses one through three, and I got to deal with the root problem, because if you don't do that, you're just going to be arguing, yelling at each other, and nothing's going to get done. So got to drill down, deal with what's really going on. Now I can come back and deal with what's going on in the surface. Now, let me just, for those of you that aren't too familiar with um, the Greco-Roman background of the New Testament, let me just tell you what's kind of happening here at Corinth. Um, so many people don't realize that uh Mo there were no real, the restaurants of the ancient world were temples. Uh, by and large, if you wanted to go out and eat a meal, you were going to go to a temple. So uh, imagine not being able to go to any restaurant um, where, where meat wasn't being sacrificed to an idol. So this was something that if you wanted to eat meat, you really couldn't get away from this issue. So this was a very, very practical issue. It was something social, it was religious, and people were facing it on a daily basis. And while, again, many uh, readers of the New Testament obviously uh, rightly assess that this is religious, uh, many people miss that this was also just very social as well. Um, we know from various writings, not everyone in the ancient world took um, the so-called gods very seriously, to be perfectly honest. Some did, uh, some didn't. Uh, there's writings of Greek philosophers that are mocking, literally. They're just making fun of uh, Greek mythology and the gods and say it's ridiculous, you know. And they were kind of more rationalist and you had ancient materialists that believe uh, only the material world is the only real thing. Uh, in the world. So uh, you, not everyone took the religious aspect seriously, but what everyone did take seriously was the social aspect. And a person who wouldn't participate in these religious meals was socially and politically suspect. As a matter of fact, a lot of more recent New Testament studies has, has pointed out that when we talk about the emperor cult, while you might have had, you know, like a Nero who uh, probably did have a mental illness as, as, as well as um, uh, just demonic oppression uh, in him. And he did uh, just have this uh, megalomania and he wanted to be worshipped. And yet really the emperor cult also was just very practical. It was Rome's way of granting tolerance to to their empire. Um, Rome had conquered so much territory. You had people of so many different religions and they could have tried what different empires had done in history, which was enforce their religion on everybody. Uh, but Rome said, you know what? That's not going to work. We don't think that's the best way to keep the empire together. So by and large, we kind of want people to be able to do, you know, their own thing. They, they let the Jewish people by and large um, keep their, their own religion. But what the emperor cult was is like, look, this is our way of checking to see who's a good citizen, who's who's gonna who's likely to betray us and fight against us and start a civil war versus who's willing to um, to to side with us at least politically. Hey, you can have your gods, you can have worship as long as you don't cause any political problems. And so the emperor cult was kind of a political test. It's like, look, you can have all your gods or your one god or whatever it is, as long as you offer a pinch of incense to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord, and you don't even have to mean it in your heart, just say it. It's a sign of political allegiance. It's like just signing your name, you know, I will not be an insurrectionist. I will obey and, and submit to the authority of Caesar. And as long as they know that, 
uh, a number of the emperors, they were perfectly fine with that. So this was not just religious. This was social and this was political. It was about knowing who fits into the community, who fits into the city, who fits into the state, who fits into the political system. It was a political as well as a religious test. So in that sense, it was very, very important and very, very practical. And notice what Paul does. He says, therefore, concerning eating of things offered to idols, we know. So knowledge matters. When Paul said that knowledge puffs up love edifies, he was not therefore, therefore saying that knowledge doesn't matter. But what he's doing is, is chastening knowledge. He's redirecting it. He's harnessing it for what it's for. That knowledge cannot be an end of itself. Love is the end of knowledge. So he harnesses knowledge. He says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. This is probably a slogan the Corinthians had. This is a part of that statement in verse, verse 1 that we all have knowledge. Yes, they do have some real knowledge. And one of those things is there's uh, that an idol in the world is nothing. It's just wood, stone, hay, and stubble. God had been saying that for hundreds if not thousands of years in the Old Testament. These idols that these people make bow down to worship Wood, stone, hay, stubble, that, that's all it is. So they have some right knowledge. He goes on to say, and at the end of verse 4, there is no other God but one. Absolutely, that's the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. And so the Corinthians know that. They know that there's one God. Once again, they're right in their knowledge. So, so far, we're checking the boxes of knowledge. They don't seem to be wrong in knowledge. So again, where is the problem? Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, um, again, um, the Roman Empire was what we would call polytheistic. It was a syncretistic society. Many religions blending together, much like the United States today. There's a lot of syncretism, a lot of beliefs blending together. Even professing Christians, um, maybe, maybe they're like you know, maybe that's where they get most of their information, but then they get a lot of information from other weird places too. So a lot of syncretism was happening. And Paul could be making a, a particular distinction here when he says um, God's in heaven and God's on earth. Um, by the phrase God's in heaven, he could be referring to the traditional uh, gods like Jupiter, Venus, Apollo, uh, that kind of thing. And then uh, lords on earth, he could be referring to uh, Caesar. So it's possible he's making that distinction. But in each either case, what he's going to do is sum all of that idea. He's going to say those are all false, these ideas of gods in heaven, gods in earth, and all of those things are truly summed up in the one God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ. And he's going to make use of both that term God and Lord. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God and Father of whom are all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So um, it's kind of fun how Paul did that. He just affirmed Deuteronomy 6.4, there is only God. He did that. And then he took the gods and lords and summed them up within the context of monotheism, one God. And yet he says, God, the Father of whom, from whom are all things, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom. So the idea of God the Father sending the Son, the Son accomplishing the 
the Father, creating through the Son. So you're seeing not a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity here, but we are seeing the necessary pieces, a sort of binitarianism, the relationship between the Father and the Son. Somehow there's the Father, there's the Son, the Father and Jesus, and somehow they are one and yet distinct, and Paul is setting those pieces out on the table, something that later Christian theologians would, of course, formulate and use the word Trinity to explain. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. So, so here's, this is an important point. Um, just because something might be a Christian view doesn't mean everyone understands that, including Christians. There's going to be many, many Christians who whose beliefs are not the same as other Christians. Their, their consciences have not been fully formed. Perhaps they haven't been a Christian as long as somebody else. Perhaps they have a different background, so they were shaped by certain experiences and ideas. And that's something a lot of Christians have a hard time uh, dealing with. Some people say, well, this is a Christian view, and you just you know do this, this, and this. And they're not understanding the fact that that's not where everybody is starting from, that there's different starting points, there's different points along the journey, and that that's something we're called to be aware of. Now, Paul's not saying abandon right knowledge because someone has a lack of knowledge or bad knowledge or whatever. No, he's not saying that. But notice what love, since love, not knowledge, is the goal. Notice how love cares about where other people are on their journey. So, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not everyone uh, at Corinth. He seems to be in the context. He's talking about other believers. That other believers, even though in one sense they know, like rationally, theoretically, theologically, okay, there's one God. But if they came out of a pagan, idol-worshipping background where that temple is where they used to go and when they ate, they weren't just eating meat, they were actually worshipping that God. Now to go back in there as a believer, they may, they may not be there in their, their theological convictions yet. Scripture might be in here, but maybe it hasn't sunken down to their hearts where they're able to actually live that out in a way that is consistent with their faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, for some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, so what was happening is some strong believers who knew that these idols are nothing, and they just wanted a good meal and didn't want to upset the the, the social balance, they're like, eh, we can go in, we can, we're giving thanks to God, I'm not worshiping this thing, I'm just going to eat this food and it's all good. But then other uh, newer believers uh, were coming in and they had a completely different experience. And so this was not just a difference of opinion, but because these weak Christians didn't have their consciences fully informed, they were actually being defiled. Their walk with God wasn't just different. It was being hindered, even attacked. Let's look at verse 8. Paul goes on to say, and he ends this section, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So for Paul, at the end of the day, this is ultimately not about food. This is about God. This is about love, and this is about people's consciences, where they are, and leading people faithfully, not from where we want them to be, but from where they actually are to where God wants them to be. 
And so what I believe we're called to do here is invite God's love to redeem our beliefs. That goes for everybody, that none of us should be in a place where we say, well, my GPS system is so perfect, it's right 100% of the time. I hope that all of us can go before God in prayer and say, Lord, I want to invite your love to redeem my beliefs. Lord, I think I'm right about this. Man, I feel like I know I'm right, but Lord, I want your love, which surpasses human knowledge, to redeem my beliefs. If in any way I'm wrong, or if I'm not wrong in my beliefs, but I'm wrong in my actions, Lord, I want you to show me that. And lastly, we'll close with verses 9 through 13. And here what we're going to see is that we're told to use your freedom or liberty. Use your freedom or liberty to build up others in the love of Christ. Use your freedom to build up others in the love of Christ. But beware, verse 9, lest somehow this liberty, that's an important word to Americans, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now, I think many people can't possibly understand how verse 9 can be true. They think, well, if I'm free to do it, if I have liberty, well, then I ought to use it. I ought to do it. And yet the Bible says that is not necessarily true. The goal of liberty is not simply to use one's liberty. Once again, the goal of liberty is love. Just like knowledge, the goal of freedom and the goal of liberty is love. I think what it is is some people feel like if I'm right in my beliefs, then I must be right in my actions. And those two things are not necessarily true. You could be right in your beliefs, right in your opinions, and wrong in what you do with them. And I think that's very, very important because there's a lot of people, I would even say personally and pastorally, biblically, theologically, I agree with their belief. What I disagree with is their actions, that they are not going about it in a way that has been redeemed. They are not using their liberty and freedom in a way that is building up others in the love of Christ. So Paul goes on to explain this in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So your actions can have a, an opposite or adverse effect on another person who doesn't understand the same biblical truth. So again, knowledge, what we know, even our, our freedom or liberty, and the actions we take and the impact it has are not identical. They're not always congruent. We need to make sure we are using them for the right reason. Paul says very strongly in verse 11, And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? And of course, the rhetorical answer is certainly not. Verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So once again, friends, what we're seeing is that love is the way. 
Love is the way, whether it's knowledge, what we know, what we're learning, whether it's our liberty, our freedoms, all are supposed to be used for the way of love. It is the goal. Of course, Paul is going to climax this point in 1 Corinthians 13, we know as the love chapter. And ultimately, 1 Corinthians 13 is embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who laid down all of his heavenly rights, submitted himself to be a slave and a servant among men, to be horribly mistreated, rejected, betrayed, tortured, and killed in order that he might love people and set them free through love. And so, friends, in the midst of a very, very heated social, political season of life, let me just point you back to Jesus Christ, who points us to himself and shows us all that love is the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word, that it is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we just pray that you would pierce our hearts right now. Open up our consciences, Lord. Reveal to us if we are rightly believing your word in various areas. Lord, even if we are rightly believing, Lord, show us if we are rightly directing what we know and our freedoms and our liberties towards the way of love in Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that your people would be grounded in your kingdom of love and that you would use us, Lord, to share the truth, truth that is grounded in love. I ask for this blessing now over your people. In Jesus' name, amen.